Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. When traveling over land or in life, it's hard to avoid all wilderness, and sometimes the wilderness is dangerous, but we have a deliverer. Teaching team member Bob Cargo continues the series Exodus, Provision in the Wilderness, with this sermon entitled The Lord, Our Deliverer, which covers Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 to 16. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let's get into today's message. Let's pray as we get started, okay? Lord, we do thank you that you are here with us by your spirit, and we pray, Lord, that you would uh, come and speak to us by your word, speak to us by your spirit, take us to Christ. We ask you that you would forgive the sins of the the one who stands on this stage. Those sins are many, and we pray that uh, your grace would cover us as uh, both the preacher and the hearers, that you would take us to Christ Jesus and his greatness, that you would connect the needs of our hearts, the pains and hopes and dreams of our hearts to the beauty of the Lordship of Jesus. And we pray for that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, When I was in, I think, middle school, if I remember correctly, my uh, church that I went to in uh, northeast Alabama, we had a youth retreat at a camp that, if I remember correctly, was named Camp Hartwell. And uh, there were a lot of great things about the camp. I think that week was very helpful to me spiritually. I also remember the beauty of the camp. Beautiful lake, beautiful grassy area, this big hill with a cross on top of it. So many good things about it. But there was one thing about that week that was not great, and that was the bunk bed I had to sleep in, okay? If you've ever been to a camp that's just sort of, you know, a low-end camp uh, in terms of cost, uh, you know, the bunk beds are not always that, that great. And this bunk bed, I'm pretty sure, was a holdover from World War II, and this was a long time after World War II. Now, there was a great metal frame, and it was very firm on each end, but the problem was in the middle. If I remember correctly, even the metal frame in the middle was bent, and I thought there's probably a story behind that. That's not easy to bend. But worse than the bent frame was the mattress. It was pitiful, and worse than the mattress was the, were the springs. They were awful. So to, they sagged terribly. So firm on one end, firm on the other, other end, and really sagged in the middle. Well, I would say that could be very much uh, an illustration of the experience of the Christian life by all of us to some extent, but by some of us more than others. Uh, What do I mean by that? Well, our experience of salvation can be uh, summarized in three parts. There are really more parts to it than that, but we could summarize it in these three. At the beginning of our Christian experience, when we first put our faith in Christ, we received justification. What is that? That is free deliverance from the penalty of sin. Deliverance from the penalty of sin. So immediately upon receiving Christ, we are given the righteousness of Christ. We are declared not guilty. We're given all of our forgiveness. God just does it as a declarative act, and it is firm. At the end of the Christian experience, when Jesus comes back again one day, brings the new heavens and the new earth, we receive new bodies and that kind of thing, we experience what is called glorification. And glorification means that we're free from even the presence of sin. No sin in us and no sin around us. But in the middle between these two, there is what is called sanctification. And sanctification is a process. It's a process of being delivered from the power of sin. And in this, we cooperate And because we cooperate with it, that's the problem. (laughs) Right there, that's the problem. 
the first part, rock solid. The last part, rock solid. But in between, this idea of overcoming the power of sin, your experience, my experience, we all experience, it sags, right? It sags. For some of us, it sags more than others. And that will always be true. We don't believe in perfectionism in this life, not until Jesus comes back or we go to be with him in heaven. But here's the question of the day. How can we more often say yes to holiness and no to sin and temptation? That's the question. How can we more often experience power over the power of sin? How can we more often say yes to God and no to our temptations? We're in a series here out of the book of Exodus, and a series called Provisions in the Wilderness. The setting here is that the people of Israel have been in Egypt for 400 years. Now, miraculously, through the work of Moses, they've been delivered from that slavery in Egypt, and they're now making it through the wilderness toward Mount Sinai, where they'll receive the law of God and receive, in a very formal way, the covenant of grace that comes to them. And right now, as in last week when Caleb preached, two weeks ago when Jeff preached, they're in a wilderness in the Sinai Peninsula, and that's where they're struggling. And in that wilderness, they do see, however, the provision of God. Let me ask you, do you feel like you're in a wilderness? In reality, the Bible says everything in this life is a wilderness, <laughs> Until we get to be in heaven, until we have the new heavens and the new earth and God brings a completion to all this, this is the wilderness. But perhaps for you, circumstances mean you really, really feel like it's a wilderness. My family and I have been going through a number of hardships in the last several years. They seem to be mounting up one upon the other. And I'll have to tell you, there are times I really feel like we are in a wilderness. Well, God did not forsake Israel in the wilderness. He provided for them. And God has not forsaken us if we really belong to him by faith in Jesus. He is providing even in what feels like a wilderness. So building upon the last two weeks in Exodus, let's continue to look at things today. Exodus 17. Let me ask you to stand as we read God's word. Today our passage is Exodus 17 verses 8 through 16. And I'll be reading from the New International Version. It says, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. And he said, for hands were lifted up against the throne of God, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. Thank you, be seated. I never want people to miss the big idea of a message, and so here's the big idea of today's message, the negative part and the positive part. The negative part is this, that we may not be aware that we are battling against an enemy. 
When it comes to this idea of dealing with the power of sin in our lives, there could be one of three problems. One is we don't even realize it's a battle that is spiritual, but it is a battle that is spiritual. Secondly, we may not understand the true nature of our enemy. We misunderstand what's going on in our battle. Or thirdly, we don't know how to access the Lord's deliverance that he wants to give to us. There could be three kinds of issues going on in this battle. But whatever the problem is, here is the good news. And here is the essence of today's message. You'll see it on the screen. And I'll ask you to read it aloud with me, please. Would you say with me, God has promised to be our deliverer himself over the power of sin through the present work of Jesus on our behalf. The Lord, our manna, two weeks ago. The Lord, our rock, last week. And today, the Lord, our deliverer. And there is the good news that we want to look at today. There are going to be three parts of our sermon, and they are simply these. Our warfare, our response, and our deliverance. Very easy. Our warfare, our response, our deliverance. And in every one of these, we want to first look at Israel and then ourselves. It'll be Israel's warfare, our warfare. Israel's response, our response. Israel's deliverance and our deliverance. So I give you a heads up, just say, we're going to talk a lot about a lot of stuff real fast, okay? So buckle your seatbelts and hang on as we talk about all of this with Israel and then how it applies to you and to me. And I hope by the end of this sermon, you'll feel like this is something I needed to hear and this is something I can use this afternoon and tomorrow and this week. First of all, our warfare. Our warfare. Let's notice first the warfare of Israel. Look at verse 8 again of Exodus 17. It says simply, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. They were attacked. A few key observations here. First of all, who were the Amalekites? Were they, they were a nomadic marauding group of people that were in the Middle East at this time, and they were sort of like pirates in the desert instead of pirates in the sea. And the way they gained what they did was by attacking other people and stealing what was theirs. And so they were attacked here by the Amalekites. Secondly, oh, where was Rephidim? We'll see a little map here of where we think it is. Uh, the Israelites were wandering down here in the Sinai Peninsula. Scholars think probably Mount Sinai is down there toward the southern part. And Rephidim was probably a little bit northeast of that. And it indeed was harsh, desert environment. And thirdly, why was this significant? Why was this significant? It was significant for this reason. This is the very first time the Israelites were engaged in warfare after coming out of Egypt. Uh, before they get into the promised land. And as they go into the promised land, there's a good bit of warfare involved, but this is the first time they're engaged in warfare. Well, imagine if they had just not recognized the significance of what was happening. Imagine if they had not responded in the way that God commanded them to respond, or if they didn't see God show up. They had to face the reality of their warfare. My friends, you and I, when it comes to this issue of dealing with the power of sin, we have to face the reality of our warfare. This is not just something that is psychological. This is something that is deeply spiritual. We're in a battle for our souls. Some New Testament passages to bring to your attention. First of all, Ephesians chapter six, Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
Therefore, put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, still to stand. The apostle Peter says it this way, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And finally, Paul says to his understudy Timothy, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and endure hardship with us like what? Like a good soldier in Christ Jesus. One of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation in the 15th and 16th centuries was a German by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther famously said that there are these three enemies that we battle spiritually. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil. By the world, he means any system of thought that is opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the world. By the flesh, he doesn't mean our bodies. That's a different Greek word, soma. The word sarke is the word flesh, and it really means our fallen nature, our sinful hearts. So we have an enemy around us, the world. We have an enemy inside of us, our own flesh, our own sinful nature. And there's also an enemy below us, the devil. Now, the devil is not like God. He's not equal to God. The, uh, the devil is really a fallen angel. So he's like an evil version of Michael, the archangel. But he's a real being that's out for our destruction. A number of years ago, a survey was done in America that revealed that there were actually more people in America that believed in angels and in evil spirits than believed that Jesus was the only way to God. So unless you only believe that there is matter in motion, if you believe in any kind of spiritual reality, it makes sense to think of our spiritual warfare in these terms. Luther talked about the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we have to go a little bit deeper here because our true enemy really is not the world, the flesh, and the devil, I think. The world, the flesh, and the devil simply want to lead us to the true enemy of our souls. Well, what you may ask is the true enemy of our souls. The true enemy of our souls is anything that challenges the Lord of, Lordship of Jesus Christ in our hearts. Anything that raises its hand against Jesus being our Lord and Master. In verse 16 of this passage, it's sort of a hard verse to translate in the Hebrew. And once you translate it, it's a little bit of a difficult passage perhaps to interpret. But after my study, I think the way to interpret verse 16 is this. The Amalekites here raised their hand against the throne of God by attacking the Israelites. And because they have raised their hand against the throne of God, God is bringing his judgment upon them. What is it that is the enemy of our spiritual safety? It is anything that challenges the soul-satisfying lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, my friends, the lordship of Jesus Christ aligns with the reality of the universe. The essence of the good news is the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is Lord. And it is the only thing that will satisfy our hearts and our souls. We were made for his lordship and for his love. And Satan always wants us to do this, to not believe that God loves us, to not believe that he is out for our good, and not to believe that his lordship is good for us, that it will satisfy our hearts. His love and his lordship is the only thing that will satisfy our hearts. And anything that takes us away from that is the enemy of our souls. Let me tell you about myself. <laughs> I have a lot of enemies of my soul. 
Enemies like bitterness, unbelief, self-centeredness, and envious heart, I wrestle with those things. But the greatest enemy of my soul is and always has been making an idol out of my work, out of my ministry, and out of my church. It is taking something good and turning it into something ultimate. Taking something that God has blessed me with and instead of just receiving it as a blessing, turning it into the thing that I think has to define me and bring me my satisfaction. That means this. <laughs> there are some sins and temptations, some wolves in our lives that look like wolves and smell like wolves, and we know they are wolves. And they are some, there are some temptations, some wolves that come in sheep's clothing. And we have to be ready for both of those. The ones that come dressed in sheep clothing is this, something that we should love, but we overlove it. We overlove it. We have the attitude, I cannot be happy unless I have that thing. And therefore we are crushed when it is taken away and we are fearful when it is threatened and we ignore other callings of life because we have idolized that calling. It's been said before that we can tell the idols of our hearts when we look at the inordinate emotional responses we have to certain things. Where is fear raging in your life? Where does despair and discouragement and depression, where and why does that rage in your life? It might be a clue of what perhaps is something good that you have idolized. Let me ask you, what are you wrestling against these days? Is it something that really does look like a wolf? Are you engaged in adultery or substance abuse or lying or cheating or theft or abuse of other people in some way? Or is the wolf that is eating your lunch and eating your heart and eating your soul, is it really one that comes dressed like a sheep, overloving your family, overloving your children, overloving your job, overloving your affluence, overloving your way of life? Overloving your country, your culture, your political party, maybe just overloving a good meal and a nice walk on the beach. It could be all kinds of things. But when we overlove those things, they become idols that destroy our souls. Whichever it is in your life, be aware this thing will kill you if you don't, by the grace of God, kill it. So, point number one our warfare. Israel had to recognize they have an enemy. We have to recognize we have an enemy. It's anything that raises its hand against the lordship of Jesus in our hearts. The second thing to look at today is not only our warfare, but our response. What is to be our response? What was Israel's response that God commanded and what's to be our response? Let's look at verse nine of this chapter. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. You see, when, Israelites, when the Israelites were trapped by the Red Sea right after leaving Egypt, it was very different. They came to the Red Sea. The Egyptian army was coming. They were trapped. And God did not say fight. God said, stand still and see the deliverance of the Lord. And that's what happened. God brought down a cloud that separated them from the Egyptian army. He separated the Red Sea. They retreated through that sea, and they did not lift up their hand to fight for one moment. 
But in this specific case, God says something different, right? He says, I want you to fight, fight, fight. Now, my friends, we are not to fight for our justification. (laughs) To be set free from the penalty of sin, that is entirely a gift that is imputed to our record by Christ's work on our behalf. We don't fight to have a right standing with God. But my friends, we do fight to overcome the power of sin in our lives. We really do, and we should. Let me give you some verses along that line. 1 Timothy chapter 6, this is what Paul says to Timothy. But you, O man of God, flee from all this, and by all this, he's been talking about different kinds of sins in our lives. Flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Flee, pursue, fight. In 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. There is discipline involved. And in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7, the apostle Peter says this, for this reason, make every effort, there is effort involved, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control self-control, perseverance, into perseverance, godliness, into godliness, brotherly kindness, into brotherly kindness, love. We are to fight for our holiness. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? I think there are two, two realms in which we do that. First of all, we fight for the things that will give us spiritual strength. There are some things that God has said, if you If you access what is called the means of grace, the disciplines of grace, you will find a greater power to say no to sin and temptation. What are those means of grace? It's the word of God. Are you in his word daily and regularly? It is prayer. Are you going to God on a regular basis in prayer, especially when you're tempted that you're praying to him? It is worship individually as a family here all together. Worship strengthens your soul. It is also fellowship and accountability. So he sent me a quote this week that said, accountability should look less like the Pharisees policing each other's sins and more like Aaron and her holding up Moses' weary arms. That's the way in which we're to hold each other accountable by giving each other strength. So one area of effort is simply the effort to do the things that bring us God's spiritual strength. But the other realm of effort is simply this, it's very common sense, put forth effort to flee temptation. (laughs) Put forth effort to resist moral compromise. Take action not to put yourself in a situation where you'll be tempted. And if you find yourself going in that direction, flee from it and go the other direction. There is effort in all of that. And this is what he says, make every effort to do so fight the good fight. But there's a balance here, and that is we fight the good fight through faith. As we fight, we fight not with faith in ourselves. We fight with faith in the work of God. Let me say that again because it's critical. We fight, but we do not fight putting our faith in our own effort. We fight putting our faith in the work of God for us, in us, and through us. We've just read here in 2 Peter chapter 1 that we're to put forth effort. Well, look at what he says in verses 3 and 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him that is Christ, 
who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through those, that, that means his glory and goodness. He's given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. We fight according to his nature. Romans 13, 14, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to, to gratify its desire. Do you see the balance there? Don't make any provision for the flesh. Don't make any opportunity to say yes to sin. Some of us are masters in saying we don't want to be tempted and that we throw ourselves in the path of temptation as quickly as we can. That doesn't work. Make no opportunity for the flesh. But on the other hand, don't just trust in yourself. Like Iron Man, put on, put on, the, the, put on the Lord Jesus Christ so that you're fighting with his strength. What a beautiful picture of what it is to fight with the strength of Christ is that I fight knowing that he is the one that gives me power. And one last verse, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Paul says, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, continue to work out, not work for your salvation, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you to will and to act for his good purpose. You work it out, but it is God who is working through you. So that's our warfare, and that is our response. We are to fight with faith, and that leads us lastly to our deliverance. Our deliverance. Yes, the warfare is that we're battling anything that raises its hand against the Lordship of Christ. Yes, our response is to fight in the battle, but my friends, here is the good news. Here's the gospel in this passage. God himself is our deliverer. Let's look at how God delivered Israel. Look again at verse nine, please. Verse nine of this passage. Moses says, tomorrow I'll stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Moses' hands being lifted up represented his prayers. It represented his intercession for Israel. It represented his being the mediator between Israel and God. Now, why did God ordain that Israel would only see this victory in this way? Here's why I think it happened this way. When God provided man in the wilderness, there was no denying that this was a miracle of God. They didn't do one thing to make the manna appear, right? When God gave water out of the rock, the Israelites knew it was a miracle. Yes, Moses struck the rock, but that doesn't normally produce water. This was a miracle of God and they knew it. But in this case, they go out and they fight and they might have concluded, well, this time we did it on our own. This victory belongs to us. But God wanted them to understand the battle is the Lord's. I am the one who has delivered you. And so he ordained that it would be obvious to them. When Moses was interceding effectively, they were winning. And when the intercession was not there, they were losing. And the victory belonged to the Lord. The Lord was their banner of victory. How does that apply to you and me? 
My friends, here is the gospel in this passage. You know, many, many places in the Old Testament, the leading figures of the Old Testament prefigure Christ. They point ahead to Christ. The prophets, the priests, the kings, the leaders. And in this passage, that is what we see. Because this is the way I would summarize the very heart of my message that I want you to hear today is this. That in this passage, we see that Jesus is our greater Joshua. He is the captain of our souls who fights for us and leads us into battle. And also, Jesus is our greater Moses who always lives to intercede for us. Here is Jesus in the passage. He is our Joshua who fights for us and leads us into battle. And he is our greater Moses who always lives to intercede for us. My friends, here's the reality. Every single time you and I say no to sin, every single time we say yes to the soul-satisfying lordship of Jesus, Jesus is the hero of our obedience. Let me ask you, who do you think is the hero of your obedience when you obey God? It is not you. It's not even the Holy Spirit, I think. It's Jesus. Jesus is always the hero of your obedience. Why? Because it was Jesus who was your Joshua, and by his sinless life and by his death on the cross and by his empty tomb, he has won the victory over the penalty of your sin and the power of your sin and someday the presence of your sin. It all flows from the cross of Jesus. He has been the Joshua to do all that. And even now, he is your Joshua who sends the Holy Spirit. It comes from Jesus. And the power you get from the Holy Spirit is a power you have because Jesus, your Joshua, sends the Holy Spirit into your heart to empower you. And not only is Jesus your greater Joshua, Jesus is your greater Moses who intercedes for you every day of your life, but especially he intercedes for you when you are tempted. Let me ask you, as I've preached this sermon, what sins have come to your mind? I have no doubt in my mind that as I've talked today, that for every one of you, there is something that has come to your mind and your heart over and over again. I don't know what that is, but you know what it is. It's something in your heart, something you do, or something you fail to do, but there is a battle raging. I want you to know that there is someone who Jesus is for you every time you're tempted. And there is something that Jesus is doing right now for you every time you're tempted. And the book of Hebrews talks about it. And here's what it says. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to intercede for them. When you're tempting, tempted, he is praying, he is interceding, he is asking for you to be strengthened. And therefore, what should you and I freely do? Don't hide your sin. Don't hide your temptation. Don't hide your weakness. Take all of that and run to Jesus and say, I am weak, I am tempted, I want to give in, I have a hard time believing. And why do you run to Jesus with it? Here's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter four. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet 
He was without sin. So let us approach the throne of grace, how? With confidence. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Some of you may be thinking, the reason I don't go to God when I'm tempted is I feel so ashamed. I feel so ashamed that I've buckled to this temptation over and over again. How can I go to him again? Here is the answer. It is a throne of grace and you will receive mercy and you will find grace to help you. Here is the gospel in Exodus. Jesus is our greater Joshua and Jesus is our greater Moses. Let me ask you very honestly today, where does the battle rage for you to embrace the soul-satisfying lordship of Jesus Christ? What is it in your life that raises this hand against the lordship of Jesus in your life? There's no doubt in my mind that for some of us in this room, it's a big enough room and there are people listening online. There are a number of us here who have gotten very warm and close to wolves that look like wolves and they smell like wolves and they in every way present the threat of being a wolf. And that's going on in your life. You've embraced a lifestyle of dishonesty and lying and manipulation and you know it. Some of you are involved in willful unfaithfulness to your spouse, a secret affair, an addiction to porn, whatever it might be. Some of you have a purposeful knowledge that you are bullying other people for the sake of your business success and you're treating them in a way that you would never want to be treated. And right now you have become cozy with a wolf and you're treating it like a tame puppy and it is not a tame puppy. And it will, my friends, devour your soul sooner or later. Recognize it to be a wolf and ask the Lord Jesus to slay that wolf for you and through you by your willingness to obey. Maybe others of us here are, have become very cozy with wolves that appear to be sheep. If that's true for you, what is it in your life? Are you over-loving your children? Are you over-loving your spouse? Are you over-loving your career, your job, your success, your way of life? Are you over-loving your country, your culture, your political party? Are you over-loving a pastime and a hobby that makes you so happy for a little bit at a time and it's become your obsession? What is it that you find yourself not properly loving, but over-loving? And because you're over-loving it, it has become a wolf that could devour your soul. There's a minister from many years ago by the name of John Owen who said, we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. Very well said. We must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. He called it the mortification of the flesh. And by the work of the spirit, we are to mortify the world, the flesh, and the devil. But my friends, here is the good news. Please hear it. Jesus has killed your sin. By his perfect life, by his death on the cross, by his empty tomb, he has gained a victory over the power of your sin and the presence of your sin and the penalty of your sin. Believe with all your heart that you're free from the penalty of your sin. Jesus said it's finished. Believe with all your heart that one day when he returns, you will be set free from even the presence of sin. Yes, come Lord Jesus. 
but also believe with all of your heart that you can be appreciably free from the power of sin. Will we ever perfectly be free from the power of sin? Not in one day. Every day in our lives, we will compromise. Every day in our lives, we will blow it. Every day in our lives, we will sin. And therefore, we go back over and over and over again to the justifying grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has taken away our penalty, and we return to it every hour of every day. And then based upon that, we say, oh, Lord Jesus, please give me freedom from the power of my sin. Please help me to say yes to you and no to this imposter that promises to satisfy my soul, and it won't. Help me to embrace the soul-satisfying lordship of you, my Savior and my Lord. The good news is, that's the gospel. That is there for you. And every day, not perfectly, but every day, we can experience it appreciably. Maybe you're listening to the sermon and you're saying to yourself, this is the kind of Savior I need. I've never found anything in this world to satisfy my heart, and it occurs to me today, maybe I was made for the love and the lordship of Jesus. My friends, that's true. You were made for the love and for the lordship of Jesus, and nothing will satisfy your heart until you trust him. Maybe if that's where you are in your journey, perhaps today for the first time, you would pray something like this, Lord Jesus, I know that I need you. Nothing has satisfied my heart. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you that you were raised to life for me. Come into my heart. Forgive me my sins. Make me what you want me to be. And may you be Lord. The good news is that Jesus is our manna. Jesus is our rock. And Jesus is our deliverer. Let's pray as we close. Oh Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you are the one who brings salvation. Thank you that at the moment we first trusted you, you delivered us from the penalty of sin. And every day we go back to that, we touch that rock again and again, multiple times every day, that it's only by your work on our behalf that we are free from the penalty of sin, that you love us and you care for us, and we never have to earn that. We never have to work for that. It's given as a gift. And now, Lord, based upon that, we ask you every day that we might embrace this soul-satisfying worship of Jesus. May we look to his work on our behalf right now, his intercession for us today, that we would say yes to holiness, that we would say no to the imposters of sin that promise to satisfy us, and they never do. Lord, may we know that though we're in a battle, that you are the victor. We pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.